Kitco News special coverage of the Future Blockchain Summit is brought to you by Cook Finance, a revolution in DeFi asset management. We're here with a living legend. Joe Foster is the co-founder of Reebok. Welcome to the show, Joe. It's an absolute honor. Thank to you for the invitation. Joe, um, everyone knows who you are. Everyone knows the products that you created and the legacy you've left. Tell us about the history, starting from the founding of your company. Where were you where you all started? Well, it's a long story, but we'll try and keep it uh, yeah. nice and neat. <clears throat> it really goes back to my grandfather. My grandfather started J.D.W. Foster & Sons, which became a very famous uh, running shoe company, athletic shoe company, way back in 1895. And he had world records and gold medals from Olympics right in the first decade of the 20th century. So it was right back then. Of course, the second decade, we had World War I, no shoes made. 1920s, that was, his, that was really his uh, belly pop, his, his scene, because uh, and you know Chariots of Fire? You film Chariots of Fire? So film Chariots of Fire, uh, Harold Abrams, uh, Eric Liddell, and Lloyd Burley, they all won gold medals, and they were immortalized in this film. Right. Vangelis, you'll know the tune, Chariots of Fire by Vangelis. But he made those shoes. Unfortunately, my grandfather died in 1933. I wasn't born until 1935, but I was born on his birthday, which meant I had his name. Yes. I brought my... Certainly grandmother said, no, he's brought his name with him. So my grandfather's Joseph, now I'm Joseph. Well, what was footwear like in the 30s before you founded Reebok? Well, he invented the, uh, the track spike. Yeah. And uh, for that, the method was called turn shoe, where you made it inside out, you turned it around. And right now we, we have machinery to do all this. It was all hand sewn. Yeah. Everything was hand sewn together. But uh, they were very famous. And uh, I think it's in the Antwerp. Uh, Olympic Games, Foster supplied every athlete with the shoes. Wow. But if you can think back to 1920s, the Olympics was just track and field. Yeah. So you didn't have the enormous amount of athletes that we have today, but they supplied uh, all, the, all the athletes at Antwerp. <clears throat> and we actually have paperwork that uh, proves that. So, well, that's it. So that was my grandfather. And what was, the, what was your vision when you co-founded the company? Well, uh, moving forward, of course, I was uh, very young, 30, you know, when the World War II started. So I was four years old. We have six years of a World War, and I'm 10. When, uh, <clears throat> when education comes back and we get back into life, by 17, I'd had some college experience, joined the footwear company, J.W. Foster's. By 18, I had to do national service. So I'd only got one year in the company. I went away, my brother as well, he was older than me, but we went at the same time. We came back after two years, and we found a failing company. Right. We're, we're looking at it, and what my grandfather had started, they just continued. They hadn't continued to build. So uh, we came back, and we looked at the company. And we're trying to get my uncle and uh, my father, who were not then running the company, we're trying to get them to understand, you've got to move on. Yes. Jeff had been to Germany. He'd seen uh, Adidas and Puma. And uh, he was saying, well, look, you know, they've moved, it's, it's different. We couldn't get them to change. And so three years later, we went to college to learn a lot more about footwear. And uh, three years later, we had left the company, we had to, and we set up 
Mercury Sports Worldwide. The biggest problems of footwear pre-World War II that you aim to fix, what were they? Oh, I, I, I don't think there was a problem with the footwear. I think you had to move on. Okay. It, you, know, you, you move on from hand sewing. Hand sewing means that you can probably make <clears throat> three pairs a day. Yeah. <laughs> right. if, if you want volume, you've got to change your ideas and your thinking. Would you say Reebok was uh, intricately, I guess, involved in the aesthetic changes of footwear in the last seven decades? Well, I mean, certain things we did. Yeah, we disrupted the market, but that was later. You know, yeah, we had to start from basics, and that is, what do you start with? Football or soccer, whichever way you want to look at it, was now the property of Adidas. They'd, they'd come in. So when we left, we had running. We had athletics, which is great, but not a big company. What is the most, in your opinion, what is the most important factor for designing a shoe for athletes? What do they care most about? For designing a shoe for athletes, well, first of all, is weight. Yeah, you, you, it needs to be lightweight. And we are, over the years, this has gone lighter and lighter because of the technology, the rubbers and different things. Uh, so when we started off, um, we were not much different than Jedru Foster's except we, we used machinery yes. and we could get more volume. But you know, the most important thing for us was marketing and that's getting to the athletes. Yeah. And we did that. We really got to the athletes. We became part of uh, athletics. And so we could talk to them. What's good for you? And talking to the athletes, that, that helps us design shoes that they wanted. Right. So not being a shoemaker designing a shoe, no, what do you want? Well, what makes, oh, well, we would need this. And so we, we, we changed that and we became known as the athletic shoe. But the market in the UK for athletics, small. Yes, yes. <laughs> and I'm looking across the Atlantic and the America. Right. Every college, every university, coach, yeah. he's God. And, uh, you know, you, you can go to university with a sports scholarship. Yeah. There's one university in the UK, that's Loughborough. And that's the only college you can go to for sports. Yes. So I wanted to get to America. 1968, I'm reading a magazine. And in this is an advertisement from the, the government, the British government. We want you to export. Okay. Um, we'll pay for you a stand at the NSGA show in Chicago yeah. in February. And we'll pay your return airfare. Yeah. And we'll pay half of your hotel bills. Right. You don't refuse that, do you? Yeah. I'm off to uh, Chicago then in 1968. Had a great show. Nobody wanted, well, they all wanted to buy the shoes, but they said, where do we get them from? And I'm saying England. And they're saying, is that New England? Oh, no, 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 across the water. <laughs> oh, that was too difficult. Right. 1968, by the time I got into the American market, it was 1979, 11 years. It took me because I'm trying to push to get a distributor. But what we needed, we needed the, the hook. You know, in America, it's the hook. What was the hook? Well, in the 70s, lucky for us, running from being almost nothing became a large category. Everybody started running. And maybe by 1975, with something like 40 million Americans buying shoes and going out there running. Runner's World was helping to fuel that. Joe, what do you think is the next evolution in footwear? Next evolution in footwear? Uh, that's a difficult one. I think you should ask youngsters because they, <laughs> we did what we did. And they, you know, well, the dem what, if you were to poll consumers today, what do you think they want today that was very different from, let's say, when you first started the company? 
whether are there major differences in terms of the demographic uses, use cases? I mean, we, we see now that uh, companies like Nike, Adidas, Reebok, we're fashion companies now. This is where the volume comes from. So what the athletes want, yes, it's driven by technology. And we've seen that Nike produced a shoe that uh, Kujoke Oji, he, he, he meant under two hours. And, and so this is just influencing people. But the athletes, yeah, you can possibly improve. I mean, but we don't see much improvement. That. What we do see is that softness, lightness, this has gone street. So the companies now really depend upon fashion. How, how do you feel about uh, Adidas' performance over the last, uh, since the acquisition, the last 15 years? Did they move in the direction that you would have wanted? Well, obviously not. I, uh, but you know, if, if you pay nearly $4 billion for a company, I guess you're entitled to do whatever you want because it's yours. Yes. So they, they did what they needed to do for Adidas. Didn't do Reebok any good. <laughs> I mean, uh, and so Reebok have sort of shrunk from a $4 billion to a $2 billion company. But there's a change coming. That's right. What's that change? Well, Adidas is selling, <clears throat> or they've agreed yes, to sell, yes. with ABG. And ABG, we, we, we have Shaquille, Shaquille O'Neal. Right. And Shaq loves the brand. Final question before I let you go. What are you wearing today? Well, I'm wearing classics. <laughs> they com <clears throat> they're comfortable. What else? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Joe, Absolute honor to have you on the show. I appreciate it's a the pleasure. time. Okay, and thank you thank for watching Kitco News. I'm David Lynn. Kitco News special coverage of the Future Blockchain Summit is brought to you by Cook Finance, a revolution in DeFi asset management.